Well, good morning once again, Emmanuel. Good to have you here. Good to sing with you this morning. And uh, appreciate the music team leading us in song. Appreciate the choir beginning our service this morning as well. If you have your Bibles with you, take them out and return to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Pastor Ian already read that passage for us earlier in the uh, service, but that's going to be the focus of our attention this morning for our sermon. We as a church, we've been making our way through the book of 2 Corinthians, and we find ourselves in this passage this morning. Uh, we are going to take a break after today. Uh, next Sunday morning will be Christmas Eve. The following Sunday morning will be New Year's Eve, and so we've got a special service next Sunday with it being Christmas Eve, and a uh, special service the last Sunday of the year being New Year's Eve. And so after this morning, we'll take a, a little pause out of 2 Corinthians, and we'll return uh, the first Sunday in January to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. But uh, this will be our text uh, for uh, today. If you look at your chapter, and if you go back to chapter 4, verse 1, it says this, therefore, having this ministry, by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. Now, we talked about that last Sunday. Therefore, having this ministry, a new covenant ministry, a superior ministry because of a superior covenant, uh, old covenant mediated by Moses, new covenant mediated by Jesus, old covenant, a ministry of death and condemnation, a new covenant, a ministry of life and righteousness. So Paul is saying, therefore, having this ministry, by the mercy of God's pure privilege, we do not lose heart. If you look to chapter 4, verse 16, which was read this morning, it says again, so we do not lose heart. Paul is saying, we're not giving up. We're not quitting. Losing heart seems to be a real option, but it's not the road that Paul is on. There's something happening in Paul's experience that would lead people to losing heart, to giving in to despair. But there's also something happening in Paul's life that keeps him from calling it quits. And we're going to see from the text what that is, both the disheartening things and also the basis of his perseverance. That's where the text is going to take us this morning. That's where the letter is going to go. As we stand back from the text and as we read Paul's letter, particularly the entire book of 2 Corinthians, he indicates that there are things taking place in his life that would push him toward losing heart and giving up, things that would push him toward quitting the ministry, walking away from the church, abandoning his faithful call as a minister on Christ's behalf. There are influences in his life that would push him toward throwing up his hands, throwing in the towel, and walking away for good, but he's not doing it. He's holding up. And twice he says he's not losing heart in a very short passage within his letter. He's staying in the game. He and his ministry partners are staying with it. They're pressing forward. They're not losing heart, even though losing heart would be an option. Why is he staying in when quitting would be so easy? How is he holding up when the pressures are great? And to what end, for what purpose is Paul staying in the ministry, walking along with Christ and ministering to the church? What about you and me? Do we ever feel like checking out? Giving up? Calling it quits? Walking away? Uh, do you know of other people who have walked away? And what we mean here is they're done with Christ done with the church, done with Christianity, 
and done with other Christians. You know people in that camp? People who once walked with the Lord, once faithful in the church, but they've had a crisis or they've had multiple crises and they're done. What do you say to those people? What keeps you and I holding up? What keeps you and I holding together? Is it the same thing that's holding Paul together that he communicates here in this letter? Uh, Looking into the letter, let's begin with the disheartening things, the things that would push Paul toward throwing in the towel. If you were to stand back and read the entire letter, not just this passage that we're in this morning, but reading the book of 2 Corinthians in chapter 1, chapter 4, chapter 6, chapter 11, and in chapter 12, five times in this short little letter, Paul lists for us, he communicates to us the negative influences that would lead toward giving up, losing heart, and cashing in. In the letter, in chapter 1, he speaks of being, being burdened beyond his ability to endure. In the letter, he speaks of afflictions and despairing of life. He speaks of persecutions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, sleepless nights, hunger, deprivation, constant danger. He speaks of being repeatedly misunderstood. He speaks of the daily pressures from immature Christians and infant churches. And he even speaks of his ongoing battle of putting off sin, particularly the sin of selfishness and pride. You get to the end of the letter and we discover that Paul gets his own personal thorn in the flesh, a personal messenger of Satan to keep him from being conceited which he prays multiple times that it would be relieved from him, but he has no answer to that prayer. How would you like that? A personal messenger of Satan to torment you, to keep you from becoming conceited. All of these difficulties, the external pressures, and even his internal battle with struggling with sin, are bigger than someone taking your territorial seat on Sunday morning. Or the pastor not shaking your hand or the pastor's wife being unfriendly, or you got to the dessert table at the church potluck a little late and all the desserts were gone. Think with me through Paul's actual Christian experience. In Acts chapter 9, we read of Paul's miraculous conversion. And we're very familiar with that. Paul's on the road to Damascus. He's going there to persecute Christians. He is introduced to Jesus in a a glorious fashion. And over the next few days, Paul is convicted of his sinfulness. He's convinced that Jesus is the actual promised Messiah, the one who is to come into the world through Israel and be humanity's ransom and redeemer. So, So Paul is convicted of his sin, convinced that Jesus is the Messiah. He places his faith in Jesus Christ, and he's gloriously saved unto God, which is a miracle which it is for everyone who is converted. Paul trusts in Jesus, but then think through his post-conversion experience. He trusts in Jesus, and immediately he has a hard time getting into the church. Well, go figure. The worst persecutor is now trying to proclaim that he's a Christian, and he wants inside the church. And the church is like, no way. We're not letting that loser in here. 
We don't trust him. We have zero confidence in his character. He's not getting in here. Poor Paul, he can't even get into the membership class. He can't even get an interview with the church leaders. If it weren't for Barnabas, this guy would have never gotten a chance. Barnabas brings him in against strong resistance. This is, how many of you had a hard time getting into a manual? Wow, that was pretty quiet. Maybe, maybe you had a hard time getting into a manual. Big threshold, big barriers, hard time getting in? No, it wasn't our experience. It was Paul's experience. His first experience with Christians is, I can't get in among them. If it weren't for Paul, he wouldn't get in. Uh, you press forward into Paul's Christian experience. He finally gets into the church. Barnabas gets him in. They recognize that Paul has had a genuine conversion. Uh, you get to Acts chapter 13, Paul and Barnabas, who are still together, they won't always be together. They would have their own conflicts and separate in the ministry themselves. Paul would take Timothy and Barnabas would take John Mark and go separate ways. But in Acts chapter 13, Paul and Barnabas are still together. And the church in Antioch sends them out to spread the message of Jesus Christ and to plant churches, particularly in the east. They're sent out from Antioch as missionaries. Paul eventually goes on multiple missionary journeys, which takes them all over Western Asia and Southeastern Europe. I'll put the map up here for you. You might not be able to read that completely, but that's all right. You're going to get an idea of where he goes. Paul goes on these multiple missionary journeys. Everywhere he goes and spreads the message of Jesus Christ, there's a small handful of people who hear the gospel and believe, and a baby church is planted. And everywhere he goes, he's faced with difficulty and resistance and severe challenges. Uh, think with me. On Paul's first missionary journey, he goes down to the island of Cyprus. What is he experiencing in the island of Cyprus? Resistance. Resistance from whom? A sorcerer. A Jewish magician who resists the ministry. Uh, Paul does ministry in Cyprus. He leaves and goes up to Antioch, and he faces persecution. He goes from Antioch to Iconium, and he faces mistreatment. He goes from there down to uh, Lystra, and he's stoned. They literally stone him, and they drag him out of the city thinking he's dead. How do you like that? At the end of Paul's first missionary journey, he's like, yeah, we need to go back and strengthen those churches. Could you imagine being on Paul's ministry team? You want to go back where? Lystra? How many believers did we have in Lystra? Oh, a half a dozen. Do you remember what they did to you in Lystra? Yeah, they stoned you. You want to go back there? Yes, we got to go back and strengthen the churches. Let them know that through many tribulations, we enter into the kingdom of God. That's Paul's first missionary journey. You get on Paul's second missionary journey, he goes over to Philippi, where he's put in stocks and he's beaten. He goes from there to Thessalonica, where he uh, faces a mob riot. He goes from there down to Berea, more civil unrest. He goes from there to Corinth, where there is a united attack against him, and he is beaten again. He goes over to Ephesus, and there's another riot. He finally goes down to Jerusalem because he takes the money that those churches have collected, down to Jerusalem for the need there. While he's there, he's put in prison. He's held for multiple years unjustly in Caesarea, and then on his way to Rome, he faces a shipwreck. When he finally gets to Rome, he will eventually be martyred there. Can you think of any reason why Paul might want to call it quits? Can you think of any reason along the way where Paul's like, yeah, I'm done with this? Through. Paul knows nothing 
of the prosperity gospel movement, where you come to Jesus and all your earthly wishes are fulfilled. Paul knows nothing about the prosperity gospel movement. Paul knows the gospel of being reconciled to God through faith in Jesus Christ, which is glorious, and then being treated like Jesus in the world, which would require faith and perseverance. Paul's expectation of following Jesus was to be received like Jesus was received, and then to experience the victory that Jesus achieved. Suffering would precede glory. Everywhere Paul traveled, there was ultimately a small handful of believers. And everywhere he traveled, the burdens that accompanied the ministry would almost seem to outweigh the blessings. Again, you, 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 go, to, you go to Lystra and Derby, and, and, and there's a handful of believers there, and he gets stoned. And he goes to Philippi. How, how many believers do we know about in Philippi as we read the Acts account? You, you have Lydia, the seller of purple. You have the former demonic girl, and you have the Philippian jailer. So you have three believers there. What happens to him there? He gets put in stocks, he gets beaten, he gets thrown in prison. Everywhere he goes, there's a small handful of believers, but it seems as though the burdens would far outweigh the blessings. So when we read here, Paul's saying, hey, I, I, we're not losing heart. We're like, that's amazing. We're not, we're not quitting. We're not giving up. It's not difficult to imagine how losing heart would be a real option and a real temptation. Quitting would be the easy thing to do. So the question is, what empowers his perseverance? What, what has him saying twice over, we're not losing heart? What empowers your perseverance? Well, they're found right in the text. Look with me again in chapter 4, verse 7. It says, but we have this treasure. What treasure? What treasure is he speaking about? Well, it's the treasure that we see in the preceding verse. Verse 6, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, God has shown into our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. That's the treasure. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Paul understands he's the fragile clay pot. And the treasure in him is the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. What empowers Paul's perseverance is the light and the life and the power of Jesus Christ in him. The surpassing power is not him. He is a fragile clay pot. The surpassing power is the light and life of po and power of Christ in him. If Christ isn't present in him, he's not going to make it. If the power of Christ is not in him, he will not persevere. How does the life and light and power of Jesus play out in him in actual experience? Because it's more than a feeling. It's more, it's more than a, a warm, fuzzy feeling that, you know, he, you know he, he, he has, he's got this faith in Jesus Christ. How, how does that light and life and power of Christ in him, how does that actually play out in his actual experience? Well, he tells us in verses 8, 9, and 10. What does he say? He's afflicted, but not crushed. 
He's perplexed. Have you ever been perplexed? Confused? Bewildered? Why is this happening to me? Paul says he was perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. This is how the light and life and power of Christ in him actually plays out. This is his actual experience. The light and life and power of Christ in him keeps him from being disheartened. So what's our answer? What's the first foundation for Paul's perseverance? Union with Jesus. Paul says, we have this treasure in jars of clay. The surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. And Paul goes on in this paragraph and he speaks about constantly being given over to death so that the life of Christ might be manifest in him and his message would be authenticated by his ministry. You see, Paul has something worth living for. And Paul has something worth dying for. And his perseverance points to a power that is beyond mere human ability. And that power directs people to the glory of Christ in him. So that's foundation number one. What keeps Paul in the game? What keeps him persevering in face of all the hostilities and oppositions and persecutions and hardships and and beatings and imprisonments? What keeps him going? Even in his war with ongoing sin in his life as he seeks to put off pride and selfishness? Well, the first foundation is union with Jesus. What's the second foundation? There's three of them altogether. The second foundation is in the very next paragraph. Look at me at verse 13. Since we have the same spirit of faith... According to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke. We also believe and so we also speak. He's quoting Psalms 116 there. Knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. Because Paul has been joined to Jesus, foundation number one for his perseverance, he also, along with that union, has the confident expectation of the resurrection. And being with the Corinthians in the resurrection at the end of the age when Jesus returns and being in God's presence with them together forever. It's a huge foundation for his perseverance. If you go back and read uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, it's Paul's resurrection chapter in in that first letter. And and he speaks of the resurrection of God, the fact that God raised Jesus from the dead. Paul has been joined to Jesus. God will raise Paul from the dead. And the resurrection of Jesus Christ guarantees and secures it. So you get to the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 15 where Paul talks about the glory of the resurrection. You know, Jesus Christ has been risen from the dead, therefore we have this ministry, therefore we're not losing heart. If, if, Paul, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, we might as well go be surfers in California and do whatever we please because there would be no other meaning for life. But Paul gets to the end of that resurrection chapter and he says, therefore I'm steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord our labor is not in vain. So what keeps Paul going? Well, his union with Jesus and the resurrection. It's interesting that in this passage, as he's writing, he quotes Psalms 116, where he says, I believed and so I spoke. It's taken right out of Psalms 116. 
I would encourage you to go back and read that chapter this afternoon because Paul clearly has it in his mind as he's thinking about persevering with Christ. This is what you'd read in Psalms 116. Here's just some portions from it. I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy. Because he has inclined his ear to me, therefore I will call on him as long as I live. The snares of death encompass me. Think about Paul's ministry experience. The snares of death encompass me. The pangs of Sheol lay hold on me. I suffered distress and anguish. Then I called on the name of the Lord. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Our God is merciful. The Lord preserves the simple. When I was brought low, he saved me. Return, O my soul, to your rest, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. For you have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. O Lord, I am your servant. I will offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving and call on the name of the Lord. Paul has been joined to Jesus. That's foundation number one for his perseverance. And having been joined to Jesus, he has the resurrection to look forward to. It's guaranteed, and not just for him, but also for the Corinthians and for everyone who is called on the name of the Lord. Paul's labor for the Corinthians, Paul's labor for the Corinthian salvation, he's gone to them with a message. He's gone with them with a message that Jesus is Lord. That message and their faith in Jesus Christ will result in their being together with God forever in God's presence. And that message as it goes forward in Corinth and around the world extends grace to more and more people and it increases in thanksgiving to God for his glory. So what keeps Paul in the game? Union with Jesus and the resurrection. The last one is in the last three verses, verses 16, 17, and 18. He says here, so we do not lose heart it's the second time he said that. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction, that's an interesting description of Paul's trials. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient or temporal but the things that are unseen are eternal. What foundation do we have for perseverance? Union with Jesus, the resurrection, and eternal glory. An eternal weight of glory. An eternal glory of glory. Paul says, our afflictions, he calls them light and momentary. Paul says, our, our afflictions are like a feather on a scale. If you can think of a balance scale and, and have a feather on one side of the scale, our afflictions are like a feather on a scale. The weight of glory is like a mountain of gold. There's no comparison in weight or in value. Uh, Paul says here in this passage, our bodies are wasting away. Our bodies are wasting away. Uh, yesterday morning, as I was uh, reviewing this passage and getting ready for this morning, I, I, got, a, I got a video from, uh, a text video from one of my friends, old high school buddy, used to throw around weights with him. Uh, obviously, he stayed in the game. I haven't stayed in that game. But he, show, he sends me a video. He's 55 years old. We're the same age. And he's lifting off the ground three times in repetition, deadlifting 500 pounds. Not 50, not 100, not 200, 500 pounds. He pulls it off the ground three times in a row. And I'm like, good night. 
I'd bend over and pick up a pencil and sneeze wrong. My back is gone for a month. <laughs> How's this guy doing this? Our bodies are wasting away. But our inner man is being strengthened day by day. How's that happening? Christ is in us. We've been deeply planted in Christ, and he has been deeply planted in us, and we are in a vital union, and he keeps us persevering, and he strengthens us day by day, even as our body wastes away. He says in this passage, we look not to the things that are seen, the things all around us, but to the things that are not seen. What unseen things do we look to? We don't, we don't look at things around us. They're temporal, they're passing away, but we look on things that are unseen. What unseen thing do we look to? Well, we don't have to jump out of context. You look back at chapter 3, verse 18, and it says, and we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. What's the unseen thing that we continue to behold? Jesus. The Lord is unseen. He's seated in the heavenlies. He's seated victorious right next to his heavenly father. The apostle Peter would write to a church in Bithynia, a church that he did not plant, a church that he didn't get to. He heard about him and he wrote him a letter, 1 Peter. And in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, he says to these Christians who had not seen Jesus as he had, and he says to them, though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not now see him, you believe in him. And you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. The seen things are temporal. In other words, our afflictions, they're not lasting, they're not permanent, they're temporary. Jesus, who is presently unseen, will be revealed in glory when he comes. And we will see him, and he is eternal, and his glory is forever. You want to sing the Handel's Messiah with me? And he shall reign forever and ever. With our eyes fixed on Jesus, we do not lose heart. So, circle all the way back to where we began. What keeps you and me holding up? What keeps you and me holding together? What keeps us from giving up on Christ and the church and Christianity? What keeps us faithful? Well, in Christ, we have surpassing power in these jars of clay, Christ himself. We have the guarantee of the resurrection. God raised Jesus from the dead. He will raise us from the dead. We have eternal glory ahead of us, and this is all grace to us. You know, I got to the end of this chapter, and as I'm thinking through and meditating on it and thinking through Paul's perseverance, and I'm like, man, if I could just close this sermon with a great illustration of perseverance... If I could just think of a great illustration of perseverance to, to give, to kind of wrap this all together and put flesh on it, I'm like, well, who better than Paul? I mean, here, all the things that he endured and he's not giving up and how is he not giving up? Well, he's in union with Jesus. He's looking forward to the resurrection. He's got eternal glory waiting for him. But as I was thinking this through, I thought of a better illustration. And let me close with this. This is gonna be very familiar to you. Let us run our race with endurance. The race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the unseen one, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, what joy? 
What joy was set before him? The joy of bringing many sons and daughters to glory. Who for the joy that was set before him endured what? Endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not lose heart, grow weary or faint-hearted. Let me close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we stand in awe of you. We stand in awe of the fact that you caused the light of the glory of Jesus Christ to shine into our hearts, for us to behold him, for us to trust in him and to be joined to him in a vital union where he is ours and we belong to him. We belong to Jesus. Jesus belongs to us. Guaranteeing and securing our resurrection in his own powerful resurrection and preparing for us an eternal weight of glory that has no compare. Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you that in Christ we persevere. We thank you that the surpassing power is not in us, not found in us, but is found in Christ. And the grace that has brought us safe this far is the grace that will carry us completely home. So we trust in Jesus. We rest in him. We rely on him. Father, we continue to use your word in texts like this to continue to deepen our faith in you and our confidence in you and our rest in you. Father, we thank you for grace that comes to us that is um, unmerited, unearned, unachieved. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. Bless our continued fellowship with one another through this day and through this holiday season. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.